Good morning. As I was trying to figure out what I was going to say for today's message of Easter, I looked at some interesting takes from other people on what the story of the crucifixion means to them. There were many that were way off base to the point where I wondered if they even read the biblical account of what happened. Some were blasphemous, others were rather shallow and obvious. Uh, there, there were accounts that we would all notice. Uh, but during my search, I noticed an interesting video by Dr. Jordan Peterson on the biblical account of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. I'm paraphrasing, but his premise was that it was the most tragic story in human history. But at the end of the abyss, if you look through to the other side, you see the light. The circumstances leading up to our Lord's death are in fact very tragic. From the time he was born, King Herod sought to kill him. His parents had to flee to Egypt and wait for the king to pass away before it was safe to return to Israel, even then choosing to settle in Nazareth so as not to draw attention to their family since Herod's son ruled in his place. The circumstances around his birth surely caused people to gossip. If Joseph's not the father, who is? Why was Mary not stoned for adultery? What names would have been called by the other children, or what vicious gossip would the adults be speaking behind closed doors? For us that, as people that are brought up in the sin nature, we must admit, sometimes it's a very little comfort being the only one that knows the truth when you're in a world full of lies. There is no doubt that Christ was hurt by the sinful behavior of others around him. We know this because that's the very reason he came to this earth was to save us from our sins. The insults continued into his adult life, with the accusations of being a Samaritan and being possessed, being thrown at him. We see that in John 8:48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm not sure we realize how insulting this would have been to Christ. First off, to be called a Samaritan by the Jewish people was to be called a half-breed or not a real Jew. That brought into question his ability to speak on issues concerning the scriptures with any degree of authority. And beyond that, the Jews did not have any dealings with the Samaritans because they were perceived as impure by Israel. It's very dismissive and demeaning. A backhanded way of saying you're not worth listening to. The second part of that statement must have been equal parts insulting and heartbreaking. To be accused of having the very thing that you're here to free people from is the worst kind of offense. It also must have broken the Lord Jesus' heart to see that people around him could not tell the difference between an act of love from God and an act of demonic possession. Despite all of this, Christ continues to go out and heal the sick, feed those in need, and minister to those that are searching. He meets resistance at every turn, and many times things turn violent, but the Lord continued doing his Father's will. You see this in John 8, 58-59. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones and cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And then in John 10, 30 to 33, I and my Father are one. 
Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. We all know, I'm sure, that while Christ walked the earth, he had twelve disciples whom he called to follow him while his ministry on earth was taking place. They were there to learn and to be future teachers of the New Testament church. They provided the modern-day body of Christ, the accounts of the Lord Jesus' life and ministry here on earth through the Gospels. And when the Lord ascended, all but one of them became apostles, and they continued to spread the Gospel and plant churches throughout the known world of their time. The one disciple that never became an apostle was Judas. He was the treasurer, as it were, the one who concerned himself with the group's finances. That seemed to be his driving motivation. Money distorts your view and places your priorities uh, in the wrong place. Scripture warns of the love of money in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Because of this, I find Judas to be an interesting character in Scripture. He was chosen by the Lord to follow him. God doesn't make mistakes, and he sees the end from the beginning. And he knew from the beginning of creation that Judas would betray Jesus. That was his purpose for being there, as it were. None of this was a surprise to the Lord Jesus as events unfolded. Yet, after all the time spent in close contact traveling together, being part of a group of 13 close-knit individuals, a betrayal by someone so close to you that you care for deeply has to hurt immensely. In Mark 14, verses 10 and 11. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. After Judas left the table of the Last Supper to betray the Lord, we know that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. We see through his prayer that he knew exactly what was going to unfold, and the anxiety of that knowledge physically affected him. We've often heard people talk about how if they had the chance to know when or how they were going to die, would they want to know? The answer for most people, I believe, would be no, because you would spend your entire life with dread seeing how your demise was coming towards you. Christ didn't have that luxury, being omniscient. He sees what comes before it happens. And in Luke 22, verses 41 to 45, we see him praying. And as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And, he, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he was come to his disciples. He found them sleeping for sorrow. As the Lord finishes praying, the betrayal is completed. Judas comes with the Jewish authorities to arrest Jesus and take him to stand trial. He's accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God. He was. 
He was accused of sedition, an attempt to overthrow the Roman government. This was an outright lie, and his ministry proved it. In Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto him, Who is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Then he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled, and left him and went their way. And again in John eighteen thirty six, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So we see that the Lord is innocent of the charges that were presented. It's obvious to all that are conducting the proceedings, but Pilate caves to the pressure of the mob rather than choosing to rule justly. And for that, we see that Christ is to be executed for a crime he didn't commit. Luke 23, 4. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. In Matthew 27, 23 and 24, the governor says, Why, what evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. To make matters worse, we also see that the chief priests convinced the crowd to ask for the release of Barabbas, an actual convicted criminal. We see this in Matthew 27, 15 and 22, and also Luke 23, 16 to 18. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one of them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. So after all this charade of a supposed trial is carried out, the Lord is taken away to be crucified. In today's day and age, as warped as our morals are, even death row inmates are given a final meal of their choice, and measures are taken to ensure that they die in the most humane way possible, even if they themselves brutally murdered their victims in a horrible fashion. The Lord was not afforded this. He was beaten brutally by the Roman soldiers before being led to the cross. And at the time of his beating, as if it wasn't enough, they made fun of him during the process. Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68. Then did they spit on his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? <clears throat> When the soldiers grew tired of beating him, and they had put a crown of thorns on his head, they made him struggle under the weight of the very cross that he was to be nailed to as he walked it up the hill to Calvary. The Romans spent way too much time devising cruel and unusual tortures and executions for those that broke their laws, or in this case, that didn't. 
To this day, I don't believe there's a more terrible way to die than that of crucifixion. Traditionally, one would slowly suffocate to death as they were tied to a cross and they couldn't lift their body to receive air. For Christ, they chose instead to nail him to the cross rather than to tie him, a further indignity. And even at this point, he wasn't allowed to die peacefully, as the chief priests continued with their insults in Matthew 27, 41 and 42. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. And perhaps all uh, the hardest thing that Christ had to endure came at the very end of his time on the cross, when God the Father turned away from him. In Matthew 27, 45-50 Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that, they said, This man call for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. And when Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Had this been the end of the story, it would have indeed been the most tragic story ever written. It's heartbreaking in every way. But it also shows us that there isn't anything in our lives that we can, we can say we've gone through that Christ hasn't himself suffered in a much worse way. As Dr. Peterson suggested, when you look through all the darkness of the story and come out through the other side, you see the light. Christ went through all of this to save the world from sin. This was the only way. A perfect sacrifice was demanded to pay the debt and the Lord Jesus was the only capable sacrifice. He did it willingly, knowing what would happen. In Luke 9, 18-22 we read, It came to pass when he was alone praying with his disciples, uh, was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answered, saying, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But who say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And straightly he charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. The last part of the verse we read is the most important part, to be raised again on the third day. The whole point of this sacrifice was to remove death from the equation. We all experience a physical death, but it's not the end for those who believe. Eternal life without separation from God is the best gift one can receive. The fact that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead was proof that death was not final, and that what he was speaking of while here on earth was not a vague concept or some philosophical idea, but truth, actual physical proof. Mark 16, verses 3 to 6. They said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. 
He said unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. The end of the Sabbath, as it began to draw towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him the keepers did shake and become as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. And there shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. The work is done, the sacrifice complete. The only requirement for one's salvation now is to accept the price paid at Calvary for your sins. There are parallels in the Old Testament story to the serpent in the wilderness. As the children of Israel were being bitten by venomous snakes and dying, God provided a way to save them. He had Moses make a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, and anyone who was bitten and looked to it lived. This is very powerful imagery that parallels the cross. To be saved, much like in the Old Testament story, you have to look upwards. To look upwards is towards heaven. You don't look down. You don't look forward at what's ahead or what's behind you or inwards to find the answers, only up. And when you look up in both accounts, you see the death that was facing you, the death you deserved. And by making that decision to look upwards, that fate that you are facing is now removed from you. All you have to do is believe. I'll conclude this message by reading John 3, verses 14 to 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life.